The following is a presentation of the Boston Podcast Network. Podcasting is a great way for professionals to tell their story. Find out how you can get started at pod617.com. Good morning, Boston, and happy Patriots Day. This is David Yaz, host of the Boston Podcast. Today we look back at the marathon bombing of 2013, and what you're going to hear is a show that originally posted 2015. This includes an interview with Kevin White, who was one of the survivors of the marathon bombing. Sadly, eight months after this interview, Kevin passed away unexpectedly. As a special tribute to Kevin and his family, we rerun his thoughts on what happened that day in 2013. Something just blew up. Watching. This is video that just came into us. So this is unedited video. You can see people coming across the finish line there, and there is the explosion one and two. Help up from the medical tent. Get as many people up here as you can from the medical tent. It's just absolutely heartbreaking to see this. This is video again just coming in. You see the marathon uh, officials there reacting yeah. and getting those fences back so people can get. We have back. multiple people down here. Okay, I don't know what the cause is. Stand by. People gravely injured with missing limbs, bloody heads. Uh, uh, of ours was like, all right, we gotta get in the street. So when we huddled up and that was gonna be our plan, and we just didn't make it. Boston and Fairfield, clear everybody out of there. Use caution. There be there might be possible additional devices. Once again, all officers monitoring. Use caution. There are possible other devices in the area. What is going on? I said there's been an explosion. Um, Mom, Dad, and I were injured in it. Uh, need to come out to Boston, and I think you should prepare yourself for the fact that they might be dead. Suspect one is uh, is dead. Suspect two is on the run. We have a, uh, an MBTA officer who is seriously wounded and is in surgery right now. We have uh, an MIT uh, security uh, officer who is uh, who is uh, who has been killed. As we heard uh, the police officer saying, "Suspect in custody. Suspect in custody." And I reached over to a law enforcement source of mine and I said, "Did you get him?" And he says, "We got him." But the most important one was the decision to live my life the way I want to live it, with what I have left. Let April 15th be a day when we all work together to make this world a better place. This jealousy that we wear today, it doesn't say Red Sox, it says Boston. That was two years ago, of course, when tragedy struck our city at the Boston Marathon. Now with Marathon Day approaching once again, this week on Unbillable Boston, we look back at the tragedy that was and we look at the great inspirational stories that came out of that day on Marathon Monday, this week on Unbillable Boston. This one's for you, Boston. Boston's a different city than it was 20 years ago. The hope rises again and the dream lives on. Larry Bird's not walking through that door, fans. The world will return to this great American city to run harder than ever and to cheer even louder. This is our f***ing city. Welcome back to Unbillable Boston. I'm here with Sarah Worley, and uh, we've been talking about the marathon on the on the uh, well, the second anniversary of the bombing at the marathon, and sort of sharing our stories of what we remember. So I'm really grateful that uh, Kevin White is here. So Kevin and I have got to know each other over the past couple of years. Um, he was at the marathon with his parents, who are just absolutely lovely people, and uh, of course had the the misfortune of of being close to one of the explosions. Um, 
Kevin was injured happily. Not I don't know if I I don't want to minimize it, Kevin, but I wouldn't say uh, seriously. But you 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 had some injuries to your legs and yeah, yeah to to my whole body basically. But are you are you doing okay now? Or? Probably about ninety eight percent recovered. Okay. The biggest issue is with the hearing because uh-huh. our eardrums were ruptured. Those it, don't heal great sometimes. Right. So you get ringing in your ears, and sometimes I can't hear. Are you hearing me okay now? My yes, voice tends yeah. to get <laughs> off a foot away from uh, me. Well, I know, but yeah. Um, well, um, I mean, we laugh, but in a way we shouldn't because one of the things I've learned in meeting a lot of the, the survivors is that the, the injuries were just, they were really all across the board. I mean, there were, um, you know, the, the obvious ones were, of course, the, the, the fatalities and the people that, that lost a limb, and there were many, um, but... You know, people took shrapnel, people suffered head injuries, people have ringing in their ears, people have, um, you know, problems, you know, concentrating. You know, in the legal world, it's a closed head injuries it's, is, is um, you know, a cause of action and it's a big deal because it's not an obvious injury and yet it's, it can be absolutely horrible. So Kevin is one of the examples of the people who has taken this horrible event and, and turned it around um, for something positive and... Um, so a year ago, you ran the marathon, right? Yes. Yep. And tell and, and was that in in uh, to raise money for your family and getting along, or uh, it was actually to raise money for a charity that okay. helped our helped out our family um, mm-hmm. that specialized. It's called the Greg Hill Foundation. It specialized in giving immediate assistance to people who have had catastrophic problems, like their house burns down or bad car accidents, where they still have to pay the bills. Mm-hmm. And this, they are able to write a quick check for, you know, several thousand dollars just to keep people afloat. And so they visit us and all the other amputees and survivors in the hospital, and without even asking any questions, said, "Here's a check from us. There's no strings attached. Right. We just want to let you know." Ooh, um, and you're running again again this year, yes, just sir. to continue the punishment. Yeah. Um, and this will probably be the last year. Do you think so? I, okay. I think I might scale back to shorter. <laughs> and um, same charity or, or different um, charities? Actually, for Boston Medical Center, uh, okay. that was a hospital my mother and I were taken to, um, and they provided just um, uncanny support. Mm-hmm. That's what they do: is they they help people sometimes who can't help themselves. Mm-hmm. So they have a team, and uh, I get a bid number through the BAA, and they said we'd love to have you run with us and train with us. And so I said, I can't turn you down because you guys were there for me. So definitely see what I can do mm-hmm. for them. But it's, this is, has been a tough winter to train in. Yeah. So I've, uh, I've, always, I've gotten to know uh, your folks who are just salt-of-the-earth people. And um, so uh, your dad lost a leg that day, yeah. and your mom had some injuries as well, although not as severe. My mom and, and I had basically exactly similar. the same injuries. Uh-huh. Um, it, it came down really to a matter of feet and inches of where the three of us were standing. Uh, my father obviously took the brunt of it, um, but outside of his leg, he didn't really have a scratch on him. Mm-hmm. But we were directly behind him by a couple inches, and we were hit from head to toe. Yeah. And then uh, the person that was about two feet behind me didn't get touched at all. Mm-hmm. And the woman who was about three feet to the left, she lost her leg as well. Too. Mm-hmm. And the people that were in front of my father uh, passed away. Or one of them did. One of them did. Do you remember everything from that day, or there's some things that are just, you, you can't even remember? I remember almost everything except for about an hour 
gap when I was transferred from the first hospital to the second, or when I left the first hospital to go to the second, um, I had had a concussion from the blast, and one of the side effects from the blast itself was everything started to swell. Mm -hmm. And as I was going, a friend of mine drove me to Boston Medical Center to, to find my mom, and my brain had started to swell. So I had a seizure, and I fell backwards and knocked myself out unconscious. So that time period was a little gray, but from the minute the bomb detonated to uh, going to the hospital to the extended stay at the hospital to my dad being at Mass General for two weeks and then Spalding, I remember pretty much all of it, which yeah. is a good and bad thing, I guess. Mm -hmm. You know, Maybe there's some stuff you might not want to remember. Right. But well, you were telling me before we started recording that you've it's become just a little bit of routine to, to recount yeah. the, because you've talked about it so much and um, I give you credit I mean I think people people um, you know we needed people to step up and be brave, be brave and talk about it because you know those of us who weren't directly impacted it, it hurt us too in a much different way but um, to to come back from that as, as a city we needed you know somebody you were there that day to really lead us and, and I think you, you've really done that um, is um I mean, is it something that you, you uh, that you're gonna that you have used as as an inspiration to get on? I mean, I know that you 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 actually moved to Boston in part to to help with your folks, right? Yeah, well, I moved here pre-marathon yeah. because I wanted to look for new job opportunities in Boston. And mm -hmm. about two months after I got here was when the, the bombing happened, and then you know we all had to take care of each other. Um, over the next six, seven months and heal from our wounds. Mm -hmm. um, but in terms of inspiration, I think I get more inspired by when I see the other people that were impacted, the other amputees, because in watching my dad learn how to walk again, I see how difficult that is. Yeah. And um, the margin of error is very small in terms of you have to learn how to use a new leg and trust it. And you know you can fall and he does sometimes yeah. but to see some of the other amputees um, that if you didn't know they had lost a leg you, and saw them walking around it, you wouldn't even realize it because right. they have decided um, not to kind of sit at home and feel pity for themselves they, they've kind of taken it on themselves and I think a lot of that fed off the way the city responded to where um you know, they use the Boston Strong motto. Mm -hmm. But I think, you know, it, it became very personal for people and they didn't they didn't want to feel like victims. Right. And that's why they don't call they call themselves survivors. Yeah. So Yeah, a couple of people I know I I, I just make sure never to say victims. Some people because, get very adamant about it. Oh yeah. No, there are a couple of people a couple of people I work with that would smack me if I said it. I've yeah. gotten I've, <laughs> I've gotten into the habit I think in the in the right way. Um, and it was a good support group because everyone kept in touch. So if someone was down or having issues with their leg, there was you know sixteen other people that were there to to give them advice or say you know I've had that same issue. You're not alone. So, and so you've gotten to know. I know your folks have gotten to know a lot of these people. Yeah. You've gotten to know some of these people as well. It's, it's, it's so it's like a sort of fraternity, almost kind of a, a collegial fraternity kind. Oh, of. I, my father calls it the worst fraternity in the world ever joined. <laughs> Um, you never wanted to yeah. join, yeah. No, but, but, but it is. And, it, you know, one of the things I noticed is 
the a lot of the other survivors are people I never would have met in my entire life because our paths never would have crossed. But you know, because we come from different professions, different uh, towns, but getting to know all of them, you know, they become friends in a yeah. lot of way because you know we can share stories that some people might not understand about our experiences and about some of like the doctors we've met and some of the treatments and it. it it's a good outlet because, you know, my friends are always there for me, but sometimes they're not going to really understand what, you know, the impact was to us. So, yeah, we, we keep in touch. So there have been um, some arranged uh, trips, right? Yeah, there was a trip to France. Did you go on that one? I did not. Your, your folks went on that one? Yeah, I, I wasn't sure if I could uh, be on a boat with them for two weeks. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> this is all private, by the way. There's no way this gets broadcast. Well, oh, no, no. They, they'll, they'll hear this. <laughs> they'll hear it eventually? Even though you told me your dad doesn't know what a podcast is? So. Uh, my, mom, my mom will show up. Yeah. <laughs> she, she does. I talked to her, and she there she listens to a couple podcasts. So um, uh, You know, I, th- I thought it was a good trip for them to get away. And sure. I had some stuff going on in, in Boston that I had to kind of get settled. Mm-hmm. And it just it, it made sense for us to just kind of have some, some space at that point in time. Now you're one of the the um, survivors who attended the the trial of uh, Tarnayev, the, the defendant here, yeah. and um, tell us a little bit about the experience because I guess um, tell us why you wanted to do it, and then tell us more because I know we we were just talking about how it hasn't gone um, quite as you expected. Sure, I was actually thinking about this a lot on the way over because I know we had we had talked about it. Um, I guess my motivation for going was. You know, to to try to get some sense of closure and to understand the whole process. It's so I think a lot of the uh, survivors went just to actually physically put their eyes on him to, mm-hmm. you know, because you expect when they lead him out of the door in the side of the courtroom that this monster is going to come out, right? And then this hippie-looking kid comes out, and it's it's just it's kind of disorienting in some ways. Um, but you know, my experience with the trial so far was the first two days were extremely difficult because it was reopening old wounds. We were seeing images and videos that we had never seen before that included pictures of us um, and videos uh, of people getting, that we have become friends with getting severely injured. Um, and the thing that I kind of took away from it about a week later, because on the Thursday, the, the first Thursday, of the trial, um, I was actually going out to visit my parents afterwards, and we all drove out to central Massachusetts, and everyone was kind of numb and couldn't speak to one another. And, it, you know, it hit me really hard, and I guess what really got me was the survivors who were testifying we, that we had gotten to know um, as friends, but we knew them through, you know, shared experiences with doctors or what town they were in or their spouse or, um, you know, what prosthetic they were using. And so it was kind of, it was kind of a, a, a friendship that was not too personal. But then some of the survivors got up and actually told the story of how, what they were feeling that day and the moment that everything happened. And it, it kind of moved it for me to a different level when I would see someone up on the stand who I had joked with and gone to charity stuff and to hear her say, I didn't want my mother to know I died on Boylston Street. And that was kind of jarring because it, it took a, a different face to it. 
Um, and there was uh, another family, um, a mother and daughter, who were injured as well too and were separated. And that's what happened to my parents is we all were separated. And the daughter spoke about not knowing if she'd ever see her mother and her father again. And to me that really kind of resonated because I almost wanted to stand up in the courtroom and be like, I know exactly how you feel. And like no one else, like with my friends, they wouldn't quite get that, but she completely got it. Um, so that was, that That to me, it, it kind of changed the, the dynamic of how we looked at each other, the, the survivors. And it made it much more personal, to be honest. When you um, got separated from your parents, yep. was it, was it, Pretty soon thereafter, that you figured out where everyone was. No, no, no. Oh, so so after the the blast, we, we were put into three different ambulances to three different hospitals. Oh my god! So um, you so you didn't know the extent of their injuries at that point. I could see my father on the ground. I could tell he was very badly injured, and I could see the people around me. I could hear them. I could hear the screams. That was the thing that resonates in my mind, and I I could tell the people were badly injured. When I got to the tent at Copley. And they were checking me out. Um, I remember asking one of the attendants there, I said, what happened? Did a transformer blow? And which I know yeah, you yeah, mentioned too. Yeah. And he goes, no, it was a bomb. And I looked at him and I said, was anyone killed? And he wouldn't answer my question. He just kind of looked. And in my head, I'm like, that means that someone was. And I assumed it, it, it was a good possibility it was one of my parents. So when I got in the ambulance, one of the first images that was broadcast was me being wheeled out of the bombing site. And my, one of my brother's friends saw it and was like, that's Kevin. And a lot of other people did, so I was getting calls and texts, what's going on. And I was trying to get in touch with my brother, and he um, is a psychologist out in Portland, Oregon. So when he's in session, he doesn't answer his phone. So I had a friend of mine call the main office and have him call me, and he finally got in touch with me, and he said, you know, what's going on? I said, you should turn on the TV. And, you know, he quickly did, and he said, you know, I, 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 what, what is going on? I said, there's been an explosion. Um, Mom, Dad, and I were injured in it. Uh, you need to come out to Boston, and I think you should prepare yourself for the fact that they might be dead. And he flew out right then, and given some of his connections in the medical community in Boston, he was able to locate where my mother was first, which was at Boston Medical Center. When I found that out, I left the hospital I was at and got driven over to Boston Medical Center, readmitted, and they realized my wounds were a little more severe than they had originally thought. And that was about two to four hours after the bombing. And when I got out of the CAT scan, I was wheeled into kind of a waiting area where my mom was. And she looked at me and she said, your father's a mass general, he's alive, but he has lost his leg. And to me, that made no sense whatsoever because you just don't think something like that's ever gonna happen. You don't think you're gonna go out to get lunch during the marathon and suddenly lose a limb. Yeah. So it took probably a day or two for that to settle in. And then, you know, we were on the same floor, but probably about five rooms down from one another, but we both couldn't walk, so we couldn't see each other. So I think I was discharged on that Thursday or Friday, I think Friday. 
and that was my brother was there and that was the first time that I actually saw my dad because we drove over to Mass General at that point so it wasn't that that was the first time I heard his voice right right and um I mean you must have been gratified to see him alive right yeah but I mean it, it was just it was so it, it was so hard to understand to comprehend what was going on because you walk into the room and he's sitting there and you know my father he's an interesting guy and you know the first thing he said to me when I, when I walked in is he goes I don't know if you know this but I lost my leg right. I'm like yeah, it's, it's kind of obvious we can see yeah. Yeah. yeah and just kind of you know spending time in the ICU unit there it just was such a strange experience I, I heard some people say that they expected their leg to grow back yeah that they'd wake up one day and it would be it would be normal again and I think it, it took a lot of time for people to, to really grapple with that. You and I were talking about the, the one fund and the fact that it, it, it did some good for you and, and your folks. But, um, um, and while I think every survivor is really grateful for the, the gift that they got, the money that they got from the one fund, that um, it, it's too bad it can't be an annual living, breathing thing. At present, it isn't right. No, it's it's basically um, ended. Yeah. Um, the the residual of it is uh, kind of what's called the resiliency center, which is I mm. think through Boston Medical Center, and it's more of kind of mental support as well. Yeah. Um, but the financial aspects of it um, are gone uh, because it, they really wanted to have a fixed, closed date on it. And I agree because we had talked about this that it should be kind of a perpetual thing. Yeah. But um, I think there was a lot of kind of politics to it where they wanted to get the money out the door as fast as they could, uh, as equally distributed as possible. And to... to um, um, we don't want to keep you forever, Kevin, no, but, but, that, but, that, that, but thank, thanks so much for coming. So will, will you, um, are you going to go back to the trial or do you think you've, you've kind of had enough of that? I was actually planning on going Monday, but I've heard the testimony Monday is going to be brutal yeah um, so I don't think I'll go back I'd like to try to understand what the defense is actually going to present yeah and what their case is going to be like because at this point they've conceded so they're just trying to keep him from uh, death basically you, you you think they've conceded to the actions that he did the actions yeah, was the although, first thing that she yeah. said in her opening statements was he did it okay so there's been a yeah. lot of kind of angst about if she if they admitted it right off the bat why why is this being drug out so why are we, yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we, you know why are we coming in but you know I think in, uh, obviously I'm in a room full of attorneys that so <laughs> well I, I don't I, practice law anymore yeah. and, and neither does Sarah in a technical sense I guess so but that's true but Kevin I wanted to ask you yeah. as a uh, recovering trial attorney I mean um, <laughs> you know, we we all talk to one another yep. so we think we know everything but day to day as the trial has unfolded, I mean, first of all, I've been really impressed with the methodical way in which the prosecution has laid out the timeline, has laid out the events. Um, and a lot of it was really a surprise to me. And it seems there, there's been a fair amount of information that had not been released to the public. Is that uh, how you felt? There's a lot of information that wasn't released to the public. Um, they had given us kind of a, a prep uh, about a month before the trial started about what their timeline was going to be and they said it basically said 
there's going to be a, they have something like 10,000 pieces of evidence. And if you think about it, on Boylston Street, there's cameras everywhere. Nice. And also at the finish line, when people, most people at the finish line are waiting to see someone cross. So they're all doing this. All holding their, their smartphones up yeah. And, yeah. and recording. Yep. Right. Yeah. So they, they said that there's going to be a lot more information that will come out that you, you've never heard wow. before. Um, and I think some of it is, uh, is under seal, so it will never come out. Um, but some, some of it is slowly. So tell us, if people want to contribute to, to your efforts running this year, how can they do that? Um, well, it's actually... Kevin is frantically checking his phone right now well, to because get the direct information. It's, it's difficult because it's, it's not like there's a very simple website for it. <laughs> <laughs> You'd think they would do that since but they want people could, to give, right? So, it, it's, so. A, it's a CrowdRise um, website, and you just have to search for Boston Medical Center 2015, and a whole page will pull up with all the runners. I think there's about 78. Um, I'm probably the, the last, so you have to scroll through a couple of pages. Okay. I actually just set up my page last night, so I'm a little behind on everything. <laughs> all right. Um, I have the flexibility. With um, most charities, with all charities, uh, you have to raise $5,000 mm-hmm. per person to run. To run, um, yeah. But because I get my number through the BAA, I'm kind of exempt from that, but I still want to raise money for them. Right. It's just... The last couple of months have been a little hectic, and I'm not the best at setting up websites. Well, this is what we're here for, Kevin. We're gonna we're we're gonna pump it up right now. So that's no, so why I, I finished. So, yeah. it this, I actually finished it this morning because I knew I was coming here today. Good, thank Great. goodness. Yeah. <laughs> um, so um, at worst, they can they can Google Boston Medical Center 2015 2015 marathon marathon and it'll come up. And it's a you say crowd crowd, crowd rise. rise. Yep. That's the that's the that's uh, the forum for. That hosts this, that, the host, the, that, that makes it able for people to get money. Okay. So, um, oh, it's a CrowdRise site, Boston Medical Center, 2015 Marathon. And make sure to go to Kevin White's page and uh, donate in honor of Kevin running again. This might be the last year he runs, so, you know, let, you know let's do it. Let's do it this no year. No way. Yeah. But thank you. Last time we run a marathon. But, uh, <laughs> Kevin, so we've been doing this podcast, not forever, but for a few months now. And, um... I mean, I, I hope this doesn't sound like uh, I'm pandering or whatever, but the bravery, Kevin, of you um, being willing to, to tell us about you know what happened that day and what has happened since, um, we appreciate it. I appreciate being here. Anyway, I hope you enjoy it. So uh, thanks for joining us, Kevin. Please join us again on Unbillable Boston. Check out all past episodes on unbillableboston.com, and we will see you next time. This is Nancy Cremins from Guess My Optigrove, and you're listening to Unbillable Boston. How'd you do? Hi, everybody. I'm Chami DePerel. Let me take a minute to tell you about the Boston Podcast Network. How would you like your own podcast? The Boston Podcast Network can produce one for you, whether you're a lawyer, financial advisor, business owner, or really any kind of professional. You should have your voice heard through this exciting new medium. A good podcast is more powerful than traditional advertising. If a prospective client hears your podcast through their earbuds, you're already in their head. Literally, pod617.com will help you deliver a message and build relationships. Clients and centers of influence will delight in being a guest on your show. Go to pod617.com to start planning. And in the meantime, listen to the great shows they've already produced. The Irreverent Bitchless Bride Podcast the hilarious show known as Shawshanked and the wild trip through the paranormal that is 
Monsterland. Be part of the pod revolution. Visit pod617.com. In pod, we trust.